All right, good morning. I got one, I got two. <laughs> uh, all right, so we begin today session 14 of the Leaven of Liturgy. You know, I, I'm assuming as we, do, as we go through this class that you know what I mean by the Leaven of Liturgy. I don't explain it every single time. But of course, just as a reminder, the Leaven of Liturgy, the idea is that leaven is one little part that spreads throughout the whole. And we think of liturgy as this one hour of your week, right? It's about one hour of week, the week, and it's the liturgy of Holy Communion, at least, if you just come to church on Sundays. The hope is that the liturgy that we repeat again and again and again and again to you is working like leaven. Some people will say later on in, li- in their life that they automatically, as they're walking around the house, will pray these prayers and they'll just come to their mind when they're in the hospital. They'll come to their mind when they're praying for people. It's working like leaven. We're hoping the theology, the ecclesiology, the sacramentology of the liturgy is working like leaven. That's why we do the same thing every time. We don't change it every week. But today, on session 14, we're going to tackle a few items that aren't technically in the Book of Common Prayer, but they're definitely in the, the liturgical tradition the, of the Holy Communion. The Agnus Dei, and unfairly, the Ecce Agnus Dei, which comes right after that, unfairly because they're so similar in title, the Centurion's Prayer, and then the Administration of Holy Communion, the Administration Sentence. Of course, those are in the prayer book. But the Agnus Dei, the Ecce Agnus Dei, and the Centurion's Prayer are items that we infuse into the liturgy. And we'll talk about all of that this morning after we pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, but you know, before we dive into this, a question was asked last week. What about lead us not into temptation of the uh, Lord's Prayer, which we, which we did last week? And I said, well, we're out of time. And uh, actually, I was hoping that question wouldn't be asked because I wasn't prepared for it. Well, I'm prepared for it now. So uh, in, in the English, our translation of the Lord's Prayer, to clean up our lesson from last week, seems to say that we're asking God not to tempt us, which is confusing because in the book of James, we're told that the Lord would never tempt us towards evil. So what is this word temptation? What is this word that's being used? Lead us not into temptation. What are we asking? The, the statement was said that, uh, that one church or another, I'm going to say probably the Roman Catholic Church, was thinking of changing the wording of this in the liturgy so that it would be something like, um, let us not be led into temptation, or something to that effect, taking the guilty role off of the Lord, uh, as per the book of James. Um, Just so you know, no one's going to go into the Greek New Testament and change the wording to be more politically correct or something. All problems that are in the Greek remain in the Greek. And it's the translators that are trying to solve these problems. So as, as the translation goes, we should look back at the Greek. In Greek, the word temptation, which is uh, pyrasmos, uh, is the same word 
used two chapters earlier for Christ when he's led into the desert to be tempted of Satan. So uh, the Lord, after he is baptized, is led into the desert to be tempted or challenged or or encounter a tribulation or a trial or something to that effect. It's the same word. So when we say, lead us not into temptation, we say, uh, you know, well, the Lord doesn't lead in temptation. Just two chapters ago he did. He led Jesus into the desert for a time of tribulation, trial, testing, could be another word. Um, In the Old Testament, there are plenty of places in which we find the Lord testing his people um, I've got a list of them right here if you're interested, but we're going to just consider one, which is in the book of Exodus, when the people are given manna, uh, and he, the Lord wants them to receive and collect manna for one day, because the temptation is to collect it for two days, and that way you could breathe a little easier. You don't have to trust God tomorrow, because you trusted him today. We've already trusted him. We don't have to trust him again. The Lord wants you to trust him every day. So he says, I want you to gather just for one, but I'm going to rain down manna on you to test you, is the word that's used in uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, And the notion is, when you collect more than you were asked to collect, that second day worth of manna would rot, and you wouldn't be able to eat it. And you will wish that you had just trusted in the Lord Because what a relationship you would have with him if you trusted him and he provided for you every time. Every time you need it, he uh, he provided for you. That's the relationship he wants. And so there's a testing there. The Old Testament is is more free with the notion of testing the people. But James says that God doesn't tempt us to evil. And so we're asking that we not be led into a time of tribulation. Even then, you could still croak about it and say, well, um, still, the Lord being led up. I think the better thing to do is to not croak about it and associate your experience with that of Christ. Look at his time in the desert and say, if I could let him be the one that goes for 40 days in the desert with no eating and being tempted by Satan, and he can be my forerunner and my... uh, banner bearer and I'll just follow him and and be in him Lord lead us not into a temptation like that Uh, that's not to say uh, he's the Lord is tempting you into sin so that when you go to that buffet line and you see all that fried chicken is it the Lord who's tempting you to have three pieces of fried chicken you really need three pieces you're not satisfied with two Um, is it the Lord who's led you into that temptation Probably not, as James would say. I think there's a, there's a middle way between all of this. And I hope that answers your question because we've got to do the next thing. Okay? <laughs> Good. Yay! All right. So I, I mentioned before about some prayers that aren't really in the prayer book, but they're uh, injected like ingredients into the liturgy. In fact, uh, you'll find them in the missals. But traditional Anglican churches often reinsert prayers at this point in the liturgy, right after the Lord's Prayer, that have been removed from the 1549, or in the 1549, they were removed from the Pesaram Missal. In the 1552, some were removed from the 1549, or some other point in liturgical history. Uh, ever since the 1552, as we've talked before, uh, the effort has been to put back in things that have been taken out, typically 
uh, prayer book revisions. Um, there are things like secret prayers, prayers to be said. Secret sounds bad, but it's basically to be said in a low voice that's only heard by the priest. Uh, as well as some that we say at St. George's, the Agnes Day, uh, which refers to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Um, have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us, or grant us thy peace. The Ece Agnes Day which Eche means behold, when I turn to you and say, behold, the Lamb of God in Latin, that's Eche, Agnes Dei. So you've said an Agnes Dei, and then Eche, Agnes Dei, um, and the centurion's prayer, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only. These, these three prayers, you won't find them in the prayer book, and if you're a real prayer book fundamentalist, you'll cross your arms and button your lip, and I'm not saying any of this, because it's not in the prayer book. Okay, that's fine. We'll say it. And I don't think we have any prayer book fundamentalists, uh, to my knowledge. But uh, nevertheless, these are, these are actually excellent prayers for a bunch of reasons. Um, I'll call it a gospel injection. In many places in the liturgy, we take the words of the gospel figures into our own mouths and say them as if they were ours, even altering the wording at time to integrate the words into our own lives. For instance... Um, well, we'll talk about two in particular, but in the centurion's prayer, uh, thou art, I'm not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my soul shall be healed, or our soul shall be healed, as opposed to my servant shall be healed. And a real biblical fundamentalist would get his fist ready to hit down on the pulpit and say, you can't say that. You've changed the words of the New Testament. Well, fine. The liturgy presupposes that participants are not merely observing the liturgy. They're not remembering the scriptures or learning things. One of the worst uh, insults I can ever receive after a sermon is, I really enjoyed your lecture. Oh, I have received that compliment before. I thought, oh no. I really enjoyed your lecture today, Father. Now Sunday school, okay, it's kind of like a lecture, but... Sermon is a lecture. Ah, thank you. <laughs> I have to change the way I preach then because that's not right. Um, we're not here just to learn things. Rather, participating and dwelling in the gospel and in Christ. If you're participating in the gospel, when the centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, you're saying, I know exactly what you mean, centurion. Ugh, that's what I feel like. You're not worthy to, I'm not worthy for you to come to my roots, but just speak the word. Just speak the word only. The centurion says, my servant will be healed. And we say, and my soul will be healed. Just say it. That same type of faith that Jesus is so pleased with is the type of faith we're trying to imitate. Are we trying to mess up the scriptures so people won't remember what the actual verse says? No, we're trying to participate in not only the, the scriptures, but the, the Eucharist fully. So that's, that's one way of bringing us in. The, uh, we, we just finished the prayer of humble access, access, scripture into experience. And so we have this, uh, well, first of all, when we say the sanctus, holy, 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 and the bell is rung, or now the chime is rung, that's not our words. Those words are used in Revelation 4, 
when holy, holy, holy is a vision of the consummation of all things, the heavenly realm, when you say holy, 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 you're meant to be saying this with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. You're participating in that sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. At the people's oblation, which we also covered last week, we say, or the week before, we say, we present unto thee ourselves, our souls and our bodies, a reasonable sacrifice. Where did you get those words from? Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where St. Paul is entreating you to offer yourselves, your souls and your bodies. And you don't say, that's an interesting Bible study. I'll have to look that up one day. No, we say it ourselves so that, Lord willing, like leaven, this will become your prayer. We offer ourselves, our souls and our bodies. We know we're supposed to. St. Paul told us we're supposed to. So there's no question about it. We offer ourselves a reasonable sacrifice. And then in the prayer of humble access, we've got a picture here of the woman, the Canaanite woman of Tyre and Sidon saying, Lord, we are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And you could say, that's not the exact wording of the text. The text says, Lord, I am, or, or, uh, I am not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And she's speaking to the to the Lord about her daughter because he called her a dog, etc., etc. Um, but essentially, this, the Lord is so pleased with her faith. If we're going to express some kind of faith in this room when we say our liturgy, why don't we just take her words? He seemed to be really happy with her words. Let's just say her words. We'll say them as, as our words. And then one day, with like leaven, they will be our words. And that will be what we're saying. We're not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table. I know that's the right spirit because he said it was the right spirit to approach him with. And so this idea of taking scripture into our own mouths is uh, no difficulty. It's actually a pretty neat feature of the liturgy. And so we add one today. The scripture we take the, this particular prayer from is John chapter 1. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. There's a whole sermon there. But what we're saying is this is the passage where the Agnes Day comes from. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. But now taking those words into our own experience and into our own prayers, we say something slightly different. O Lamb of God, that taketh away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. Grant us thy peace. And the question, of course, is when the Lamb of God and the Prince of Peace, whose property is always to have mercy, is present, what would you say to him? You might say, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. Oh, I know another one. Grant us thy peace. Anything you can give us that would be great, give it to us. Uh, John the Baptist points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. 
And, and uh, it is not insignificant that that prayer, taken from a scripture where Christ became present to John the Baptist, emerges right after the consecration, where Christ is now sacramentally present in the room. And if he's sacramentally present, what things might you want to say to him? You might say, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. Grant us thy peace. That's why the, in the liturgy, the centurion's prayer appears here and not when you first walk into the building or not uh, before the creed or something like that. We've, we've just consecrated the host, the chalice, uh, the body and blood of Christ. Um, Jonas, could you go to my office and get my computer bag so this computer doesn't shut off? I need the power cord. Thanks. <laughs> When the Lamb of God and the Prince of Peace, whose property is always to have mercy, is present, what might you say? Why don't we just take into our mouths the words of John the Baptist and ask for mercy and for peace? And as if we were in the River Jordan, after we've all said these things together, I turn to you, and since I don't have a hand free, I'm not pointing, but I'm holding it up, I'm elevating to you, the body and blood of Christ. And I say, as the priest receives the sacrament himself, thank you, and then turns to the congregation as if we were at the River Jordan, elevating the body and blood of Christ, the words emerge, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him that taketh away the sins of the world. And if we were saying it in Latin, we would say, Ecce, Agnus Dei. And by the way, Behold means look, right? If for any reason you've been buried in your prayer book, following along with all the words, and I hold this thing aloft, and I say, behold, you're supposed to look. (laughs) You're supposed to behold. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him that taketh away the sins of the world. Christ is present. We've turned and we've held him aloft to you like John the Baptist and like everyone standing in the River Jordan which our stained glass window over the altars so magnificently portrays. In the River Jordan, we look up and say, Behold, the Lamb of God. If you're fiddling for your cell phone or looking for a mint or something like that, just take a moment (laughs) and behold the Lamb of God. That's what's meant to happen liturgically at that particular moment. Um, Any questions about the Agnus Dei, the Ecce Agnus Dei, Hearing none, we move on then to the centurion's prayer. And there's another biblical phrase here, or biblical phrase we take into our mouths liturgically. But the passage is from Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth home at sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, including his own disciples and everyone else, Verily I say to you, I have not found so great faith, not in Israel. Okay, uh, and if you are watching for stones to fly after that one, that would be a good one. 
to say this Roman centurion, much despised of the Hebrews, has greater faith than anyone I've found in Israel. Ooh, ouch. Jesus has a way of saying things. Just twisting that knife a little bit. Um, that's a humbling thing to be heard uh, from the mouth of Christ by all Jews standing about. And so we might say, uh, as we were deciding whether we should be offended or whether we should imitate, we should probably imitate. And so that's what we do. We say, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only and my soul shall be healed. Why do we come to church? Why do we receive the sacraments of the body and blood of Christ? Why do we worry about the grace of God? So that our souls will be healed. And how are our souls healed? By him dwelling in us and us dwelling in him. And so that's what we're about to do. It's a good time to pray it. We've already taken the Canaanite woman's words as our own just a moment before. We now take the centurion's words, two Gentiles. Jesus is exceedingly happy with their faith. And so why would we pray those words? Do we pray them because we only want crumbs? You know, Lord, uh, the crumbs, even the dogs receive the crumbs under thy table. It's because we only want crumbs. Or is it because we don't want him to meet us in our homes? Don't come to our home. Just stay, stay in your quadrant. I'll stay in my quadrant. That's not the point. The point is not that Jesus would stay far away, that we'd only get crumbs. The point is that their faith was lauded by the Lord as exceptional faith. And they happen to be Gentiles. Lucky us. Uh, means it's possible for us to be pleasing to the Lord as well. And so we, we mean for this liturgy to be like leaven to us so that we begin to have such a faith, an exceptional faith. These two Gentiles express exceptional faith while in the presence of Christ. Both are absolutely sure that Christ Jesus is capable of restoring life and perceive that the key element for them is not to help Jesus do it, but simply to ask, leaving their doubt behind. And so now in faith, we ask for our own soul's healing, this point in the liturgy, leaving our doubt behind. And we take their words into our mouths with what we hope to be an exceptional faith and not just a rote memorization of this prayer in this portion of the liturgy. Um, the point is not for us to be liturgical experts and say, uh, oh, interesting, you know, uh, this church uses the centurion's prayer. Uh, I never used to do that when I grew up. You know, kind of missing the point. Uh, you know, those, aren't, those prayers aren't in the prayer book. They're, they're in the missal. But, you know, an interesting thing about those prayers, um, that's not the point at which to have those stroking of the beard thoughts. We're meant to be uh, lifting up our hearts at this moment at this time. And so that's, uh, that is now the Agnes Day, the Ecce Agnes Day, and the Centurion's Prayer. Before I go to the administration, the sentence of admin- sentences of administration, any questions or comments about these portions of liturgy that are in our liturgy but not really in the prayer book per se? They've been sort of ping-ponged around uh, and landed in a good spot at St. George. Um, I think all of our churches use those prayers. Not seeing any hands or any quizzical questions. So we're going to move on then to 
the administration of the sacrament. This is the last portion we're going to tackle today. And, of course, there is some church history here to discuss. Um, In the 1549, that is the original Book of Common Prayer compiled by Thomas Cranmer and, and his associates, the sentence of administration, when you came forward to the altar rail and you knelt down and placed your hands out or opened your mouth and put out your tongue for the priest to, to administer the host. The sense of administration was the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life, or there may be an, a thy in there, uh, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Three years later, in the second Book of Common Prayer, the sentence was removed, unfortunately, and a new sentence was injected. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. You can hear the difference, right? (laughs) Uh, The one of them admits that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ is here. And that this, the grace of this sacrament can preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. The second one says, take and eat this in remembrance, potentially uh, interpreted as just sort of a recalling uh, that Christ died for you and be thankful, Eucharist. These are good things. However, you can see how the second one is... um, let's say, insufficient. When, uh, here's the history. Come on now, little button. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. And then for the chalice, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Why was it changed? Because to the reformers, they said, that's too Catholic. It's too Catholic. We want something more Protestant. And so the Protestants insisted on this. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. And drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee and be thankful. To the Catholics, they said, that's too Protestant. There's nothing about the real presence there. There's nothing about the grace of God there. There's nothing about grace truly conferred in the sacrament. It's just a remembrance. And that's not us. And the Catholics and the Protestants wrestle with each other. The good thing for us as Anglicans to recognize is that um, while Christ is truly present in the sacrament, there is also... A remembrance. We don't have to deny the fact that there's a remembrance. But he's present as well. And there's a symbol. And there's a sacrament. And it helps us to recall his finished work to us. And he's doing a work right now. There's no reason to eliminate one or the other uh, in the ping-ponging between sides um, the, you could say the set, Elizabeth came out in 1559 with something part and parcel of the Elizabethan settlement. Uh, so there was a 1549 Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer, a 1552, Edward VI, and then there was Mary Tudor that came in between there, uh, famously known as Bloody Mary, 
uh, the whole tumultuous period. Uh, if ever there was a period where the Anglican Church, or the Church of England, decided we will never be Roman Catholic, it was under Mary Tudor. And Elizabeth comes along afterwards and says the two of these will go together. And when the sacrament is administrated, the priest will say... The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. It's everything. And it's not involved in a war. There's no fight. It's the whole thing. <laughs> it's the via media. And this is not uh, just a middle way where, you know, uh, where... You know, instead of making a statement, we dance in the center somewhere uh, trying to make everybody happy. But I tell you what, if the truth is that Christ is preserving our body and soul into everlasting life, and we're meant to remember that Christ died for us, and feed on him in our heart by faith, and be thanks, uh, thankful, full of thanksgiving, well, then we're actually firing on all cylinders rather than picking two out of four. Let's make it a V6. Picking three. Don't pick three on one side or the other. Fire on all cylinders. Uh-oh. Fire on all cylinders. Uh, that's the, the attempt of the Elizabethan uh, settlement in terms of the sentence of administration. And when the chalice comes by, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee and be thankful. Periodically, you'll hear a priest administer just or say just one of the sentences to you. Do not be offended. A number of things could be happening. If I get to the very end of the row and I've just started the sense of administration for the last person, sometimes I'll cut the second half off as I'm walking back to the beginning, once in a while, a clergyman's brain has stopped working. Okay, the molasses froze up, the gears aren't moving, and the most I can get out is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, because it just stopped working. The, the, the cogs, you know, whatever, something wasn't working that day. And once in a while, uh, when the, the, the sacrament is administered, with intinction, so that it's actually the body and blood, you'll hear a clergyman say something to the effect of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for the preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. It's sort of a mashup of the two for the case of intinction, which is not necessitated or forbidden. You just have to understand why, why it's being done there. Um, so the 1549, the 1552... The 1559 Elizabethan. Every once in a while you find a clergyman who doesn't want to say the second sentence. I don't want to say the second sentence because that's that Protestant garbage. Okay. Um, however, show me the part that we're not, uh, not to be doing. Is it the remembrance? Is it remembering that Christ died for us? Is it feeding on him in our heart by faith? Or is it the thanksgiving? Which part are we not supposed to do? Well, I just don't want to give them the satisfaction. Okay, yeah. But let's not give them the satisfaction. Them. Uh, yeah, I, I resist. <laughs> I resist the resistance. Okay? Um, I think it's a good thing for us to acknowledge the fullness of, of what's happening in the sacrament. Uh, yes, please. 
can you, the 1552, uh -huh. call that the reformer mm -hmm. version, can you give us any names of Anglicans who were more continental and kind of brought that reform uh, um, emphasis into the church? Right, so um, in those few years, uh, 1549, we had Thomas Cranmer. By 1552, Henry VIII had passed the crown to Edward VI, who had been, at the time, I believe he was a teenager, and he kind of had been handled by some educators who were uh, on the Protestant side of things. Um, Lord, I cannot think of his name. Can you remember, Father? Yeah, Martin Bootser. I mean, there was more of an influence when the when when Mary Tudor came in. There was a fleeing of England, and a lot of the Anglicans fled to Geneva, and they returned from Geneva, having picked up a whole new Calvinist theology that they said we got to put this back in our our prayer book, and it started sort of a an English uh, civil tension there. But at the at the fifteen fifty two. It was Edward VI really sort of allowing or promoting uh, his trainers to to basically push the the when, when the. Was Cranmer martyred? Cranmer was martyred under Mary Tudor. So what the year would have been, I can't tell you. But fifty-five or so. Right, something to that effect. Uh, now Cranmer had also toured continental Europe and been to all of the reforming seminaries in an attempt to. Um, gain favor for Henry VIII's annulment, right? So when he had gone to all those seminaries, he also picked up what they're saying in Germany now. I never heard this, you know, so he's picking up the theology. When he comes back, he's ready to rock too. Um, so uh, that's, that's a little bit of the history. This is why we're not called a Cranmerian church or an Edwardian church or a Heinrichian church. It's the Anglican Church, which involves a long, much longer story. I, yeah, Martin Booser. I know uh, John Knox returned after uh, after the what you call it? They call it the uh, Marian Exile. But you're talking 1552, so you know that's the best I can give you, Thank you. On a, in a thumbnail sketch. But now when we're talking about how to receive, you may be aware or may not be aware of another tension uh, that, that occurred right around the time of, of uh, or occurred in the 16th century. How ought we to receive? In the first years of the Anglican Church, theologians argued about how people should receive communion, and the, the controversy was kneeling or sitting. You can tell which one won <laughs> by the fact that we've got kneelers all over the place. But um, do we kneel to show humble and grateful acknowledgement of benefits, as uh, reformers would insist, or do we express adoration of Christ truly present, as Catholics would prefer, or is it both? Um, can you possibly kneel in humble and grateful acknowledgement of the benefits of Christ and to adore him present in the sacrament? Why can't you do both? It's a great Anglican answer. <laughs> Why can't you do both? Um, Calvinists take a seat. That sounds bad. Uh, Calvinists of the 16th century made a point of sitting to receive communion in an effort to differentiate their theological position on where Christ is in the sacrament. and I, In other words, he's not here. 
In the sacrament, we are uh, transported to him in a heavenly realm in a spiritual sense. But he's not here. In the Catholic uh, theology and our theology, that is uh, incorrect. He is here in the same way uh, that John exclaims, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, That theology really wins out in the Anglican Church. But at the 1552, when the reforming fires were burning, uh, right before the, the, uh, the prayer book was dealt out, a, a rubric was printed, a liturgical explanation added to the 1552. Since it was apparent that Anglicans were not going to give up kneeling, the black rubric was an explanation for why you're kneeling, or a, uh, a polemic for why you should be kneeling some sort of instruction. It was an attempt to give a Calvinist qualification for kneeling, which Anglicans would not give up. And why was the rubric red black? Because it was printed so fast and so late they didn't have the red ink, and they printed it and threw it in the back, and you can still find prayer books, uh, of course, in a museum somewhere, where the black rubric is like glued in on the last page. That's the 1552. And guess what Elizabeth did in 1559? (laughs) <laughs> ripped it out. It's not such a terrible thing for there to be a fog of war in the 16th century. Uh, just like I, I like to say, if the church wanders astray, even for years or for centuries, it's not such a tidy thing to bring her back online. There can be a bit of a mess. Just like uh, I, I like to say, here we are in the continuing Anglican Church, and we'd love to have there just be this great, uniform, global message. But really what happened is the Episcopal Church stepped on a landmine, or uh, intentionally or not, in the 60s, and it's blown all different directions. How long does it take to get all of these, these pieces back together again? It takes a long time. So here we are at the very beginning of the fog of war of the Reformation in 1552, and you can see this, the, what you call it, the, uh, the meter going like this, right? The Anglican Reformation takes about a century and isn't quite settled until 1662. We've got some, some flagging uh, to do back and forth here over the next century. But in the end, we can ask ourselves, why do we kneel? In the fog of war of the 16th century, the black rubric was an attempt to prevent the popular late medieval theology that Christ's natural flesh and blood were on the altar, that blood and guts were on the altar, that when, you, when the priest came by, he handed you a portion of Christ's elbow and some blood from his wrist. That was a, a, not, a, not the official church's position, but it was a popular understanding. Uh, and the reformers were saying, we got to get as far away from that as we possibly can, and the pendulum swings too far. You can hear it if you read the, the actual black rubric. You can, you can hear in the wording, this, isn't really, this doesn't apply anymore. <laughs> uh, all, of, all of this uh, uh, needle going back and forth and back and forth has been settled. We've got this pretty straight now, but at that time, it was all over the place. We kneel... Because he is truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And where he is present, he is to be adored. 
Is he present in blood and guts? Is it a bloody sacrifice in the altar? No, but he is really present. Body, blood, soul, and divinity, Christ is present. That is the position of, uh, of all the historic churches, truly. There isn't a church where they believe in you know, uh, uh, blood and guts on the altar, um, at least in the, in the official in the official. But uh, that's the the sense in which he is to be adored, which is why we don't just move the pews aside and play floor hockey on Saturday nights, because that room is sacred. Christ is present here. Um, James DeCoven, who was a 19th century Anglican, falls into the category of, of ritualist. This is after the Oxford movement. He comes on and says, okay, we're discussing these rituals. We're discussing these words. He says this, this is a, a, a favorite quote of, of our bishop, Bishop uh, Chad Jones. He says, you may take away from us, if you will, every external ceremony. You may take away altars, super altars, lights, incense, vestments, and we will submit to you. But gentlemen, to adore Christ's person in his sacrament, that is the inalienable privilege of every Christian and Catholic heart. How we do it, the way we do it, the ceremonies with which we do it are utterly, utterly indifferent. The thing itself is what we plead for. That's a pretty good statement. Uh, that's a 19th century uh, Anglican ritualist, James DeCoven, a favorite of, of our own bishop. And so when we say, you know, which things are we willing to, uh, to fold on? You want us to sit? Okay, you want us to kneel? Okay, all right, all right. You want me to wear a chasuble? You want me to wear a cassock? You want me to wear a hat? You want me to wear a, a hat with a pom-pom on top? <laughs> okay, all right. We can do it. Um, all of these things are meant to enhance and to uh, draw us towards what's really happening, which is an adoration of Christ present, a, re- a right reception of the sacrament and the grace that he's provided for us. Um, if you want to do it, with four bare walls and a pulpit. <sighs> okay. It would be better if we, we treated it like we do, offering the very best and most beautiful thing we can possibly offer. That's what we try. Now, you could make it more uh, glossy and, 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 and a bigger presentation than we do now, but it takes a little bit of teaching because what you wind up doing as a shepherd is leaving the sheep behind and all the clergy go off, you know, we call it chancel prancing, chancel prancing, and, and, <laughs> and we've got all our vestments and hats and all that kind of stuff, and we've left all the congregation behind. That's not so hot. That's not shepherding, in my mind. You know, uh, if we're going to, what we call, climb the candlestick, which is the, the church's churchmanship going higher, there needs to be some teaching, some instruction. Um, but the real thing at the heart is we're adoring our Lord, and receiving and participating in him. That's what we're doing. Um, that's all I have for, for today. That's the Agnes Dei, Ece Agnes Dei, Centur- uh, Centurion's Prayer, and Sentences of Administration. And we're all out of time, but Bob, go ahead. Is it, ever, is it okay to receive the host on the tongue and then the cup? I mean, okay? Yeah, there's several ways to receive. Um, one manner in which to receive is to receive directly on the tongue. 
It eliminates the possibility that, that uh, you could drop it. Or Sometimes when people come to receive, they don't realize it, but their hands are almost vertical. And when I place the, the host on their hand, once or twice it has slid down the hand and down the sleeve. At least if you're going to do your hands, give me, a, give me a, a horizontal surface to place the host on. Perhaps even better is just directly on the tongue. But you still got to give me a target. Put your tongue out so I can, <laughs> so I can place it on your tongue. Uh, and to receive from the chalice, it's, it's helpful for the person with the chalice for you to guide the chalice to your own mouth, but don't try to take the chalice away. We don't have, luckily, any wide-brimmed hat ladies, but sometimes when the wide-brimmed hat comes around and that chalice goes forward, I cannot see what is going on under that chalice, so I hope you've got this. Uh, anyway, we used to have some wide-brimmed hats in Atlanta. But uh, it's, 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 uh, there are many, uh, not many, but there are a few appropriate ways to receive Holy Communion, and perhaps the safest one is just for me to place it on your tongue and the chalice to come around directly in. But any other questions about uh, these prayers or administration or anything like that? Go in once. Go in twice. Sold. All right, until next time. Thank you.